Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing. Still available at all your finest retailers. Think early Christmas gift, please. Yeah, yeah, really. Think lots of early Christmas gifts. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, of course, we're going to hit the pub. We're going to get your feedback going. We've got some interesting stories in the pub this time. Uh, then we're going to go visit the brewery and talk about some of the things that we've been doing and some of the things that we've tried. And before we get over into the lounge, where we're going to be talking to Mike Brennan from BSG about, well, America's favorite topic, hops. But before we do any of that, please sit back and take a listen to the messages from the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF IOTA 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. And uh, we've got an announcement before we get into things. And don't forget, if you haven't been paying attention to your podcast feed, there was a brand new episode of The Brew Files just released, episode 92, with uh, Kylie Gwynn talking about her mecha-grade brewing man, best-of-show-winning, Gruit, based around a wit beer. And we get into that and also her other favorite style for making Gruits, you know, a.k.a non or very lightly hopped beers uh and which was a porter so we got both of those recipes up we got the episode up and you should listen to kylie when she talks about herbs and spices because she kind of knows what she's talking about yes she does indeed and don't forget you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in apple podcast you can click the aha amazon brewers friends or byo links on the website and by going to patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause which for this part of the year is finally settled and is it is the world central kitchen a um, organization started by Chef Jose Andres and his wife Patricia. They uh, take food to distressed areas and uh, help fund the people who give out food. Now, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. Like, for instance, when the, the, the hurricane hit Puerto Rico, they were there serving food to people. 
when, uh, say, the wildfires hit this summer in various locations, they helped provide funding for local restaurants to feed the people who were helping to fight the wildfires. So basically, they believe in supporting communities through food. They do it on a large-scale level. They do it on a small-scale local level. And we'd like you to help us help them out. So please go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and donate whatever you can, and we will send it along to World Central Kitchen. Yeah, I'm trying to think between him and Guy Fieri. They both seem to have sewn up the market on emergency good chefing. Although, <laughs> although I'll, I'll take his food over Guy's. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not going to even go there because they're both doing good things. So thanks to both of them. Yep. And now, of course, it's time for one of my favorite segments of the show because, well, I like this effect, although it's a little hard in my throat. It's time for us to get into your feedback. feedback. That's right. It's time for a couple pieces of feedback. And the first one I just got included because it made me laugh. So we got an email from Gabe Sassman saying, I just wanted to say that I just listened to the latest Experimental Brewing episode 122, and I believe that this is probably one of the best episodes. I should say that it, it might be the fact that there has not been an episode for a few weeks. So it might be like what would happen if you were stranded on an island and the first steak you have tastes like the best steak you have ever had and could be the worst. Thanks for the show. <laughs> Thanks, Gabe. That was very kind of you to say that. Uh, I, I kind of take from that that maybe uh, the fewer shows we put out, the better they are. Is that what you're saying? Or the better received. <laughs> yeah. It's like when I shave my beard off and people are begging me to grow it back, I kind of reach the conclusion that the less you can see of my face, the better I look. So maybe it's the same thing with a podcast, huh? Well, or it could be like a, what happened to me when I worked a free Green Day concert in Boston as security, nearly got killed, endured a riot, and my only pay was a Miller, a Miller High Life at the end of the evening. And you know what? That was the best damn Miller High Life I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, man. Situation is everything, isn't it? <laughs> Indeed. And our second piece of feedback actually comes from uh, John Horn. And I'm putting this out here because I want to see if anybody else has any experience with this because neither Denny or I do. John writes in to say, I just came across this recently released dry yeast and enzyme combo. It's DA-16 from Fermentus. Two comments. I thought Brute IPA was dead. Well, and there was a really great article, and I forgot to track it down so I could put it in the show, about that, where uh, they actually did a whole history of Brute IPA and its death with uh, Kim, the guy who invented it at Social Kitchen. Boy, that would only take about five minutes, huh? You'd think. Um, I think John, uh, from John Hall. So go look up John Hall and Kim and Brood IPA and you'll be able to find it. Uh, and the, he says, <laughs> getting back to the point, uh, John continues to say, and the recommended pitch temp range is 20 degrees Celsius to 32 degrees Celsius, 68 degrees Fahrenheit to 89 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. What the kvike? That is a pretty far <laughs> range. That's very interesting. And he says here, I also have not been able to find it for sale in the U.S. at this time, and it may only be available in the large 500-gram package. Anyway, in light of your review of that uh, Brood IPA from El Segundo, I thought you might find this interesting. The Brood IPA was in the last episode, uh, Seiko, and I do find that interesting. I want to know, has anybody out there actually played with DA-16? Because that is um, from Saf Brewers, from Fermentus, and they, they say on the website it's for dry, flavorful beers like Brood IPAs. 
Um, so it's kind of another tool, another toy. I don't know. I'm curious to see if anybody's actually tried DA-16. You know, and uh, I know that Lollaman has been getting into uh, genetically modified yeasts and stuff like that. I wonder if this could be one of those coming from Fermetas. Well, except for, I mean, if you look at it, it, the ingredients on the package, at least, you know, on their website say yeast, so Saccharomyces cerevisiae, maltodextrin, glucoamylase from Aspergillus niger. So, I mean, it, it does actually have like a, a an enzyme separately, at least. Yeah, it does, man. It's not at all what I had thought it might be. Yeah, so this is kind of cool. I love the the apparent attenuation on it is 98 to 102%. 102%, huh? <laughs> wow. I remember, apparent attenuation. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that was a little scary there for a minute. Yeah, so it, it definitely sounds interesting. I would, I mean, hell, I'd love to play with it, but you know me. I like to play with anything now. So if anybody out there has actually given DA-16 a shot or had a beer made with DA-16, let us know. I would I would like to hear some thoughts about it. Yeah, really. Cool. What do you say we get out of here and head over to the pub? If you insist. Uh, well, you know, if we don't, then the show's going to be really short. Oh, fine. <laughs> okay, stick around. We'll talk to you again in just a minute. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Hey, welcome back, everybody. If you uh, do any business with any of our sponsors, please let them know that you heard about them here on the Experimental Brewing Podcast. So, we are sitting here at the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in cyberspace, and we're having a couple beers, and uh, what are you having today, Drew? I'm having plenty for president. So by the time this episode airs, all the political nonsense in this country will hopefully have died down. But this is one of my favorite traditions from Russian River. Every election year, they do a double dry-hopped version of Plenty the Elder. And what can I say? It's plenty. More. And the other thing I love is that uh, thanks to uh, the pandemic, 
and shipping that's happening now here in California. I ordered some of this. This was the very last run that they did for this year. And I got the beer the day after it was canned. It is literally the freshest plenty I've ever had in my entire life. And boy, howdy. Was that fantastic? Well, because the thing that's great about it is, I mean, it still has that trademark plenty drinkability and all the, the plenty bite. But with the double dry hopping, it actually has even more character to it. You know, a little bit, a little bit more of the hop flower, a little bit more of that flavor coming across. So it's a really nice, uh, you know, addition to the plenty arsenal. Kind of wish they would do it more often, but here we are. You know, somebody said that they were going to send me some of that, and I'm hoping that they do it before it's six months old. Well, it better be nice to somebody then, I guess. <laughs> just, just gentle shove. I didn't, I didn't yeah. say who it was. Yeah, but now, by the way, I also want to say that having that beer, it reminded me that there are a bunch of people, and I actually ran into this in my homebrew club. A bunch of people were like, "Oh, plenty is overrated. It's it's not the the beer that it should be, and all that." And like going. Yeah, they're like, there are better double IPAs now, and, and I kind of have to disagree. I think it's a double IPA of refinement, as opposed to, here's all the hops that we're going to throw at your face. Yeah, well, I wouldn't know, because I'm still waiting for somebody to send me some. Yeah, 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 shut it. <laughs> and speaking of shut it, what do you put, what do you, what do you put in your pie hole? Uh, I am having a Black is Beautiful from Rubens Brews in Seattle. Uh, you remember back around March, I think it was, uh, recipe came out uh, from, I believe it was Weathered Souls in Texas, mm-hmm. for uh, an American-style stout to be brewed by breweries and home brewers all over the country, uh, everybody putting their own spin on it. So uh, our dear friend Annie Johnson brought me down a can of this from Rubens Brews, and I finally uh, discovered it in the back of the fridge yesterday on a cold, rainy day and decided it was exactly the right time to pop it open. Uh, it was an interesting beer. Uh, it, this may not have been like a beer that was made for my tastes. Uh, I found it kind of harsh and astringent, and I didn't feel like the hops played nicely with the dark malts. Uh, it wasn't a bad beer. I managed to finish the whole thing. It's a uh, 6.2% American stout, so it's not like an imperial or anything like that. Um, and maybe maybe somebody else is going to have the taste for that beer more than I do. Uh, like I said, it wasn't a bad beer. It just wasn't one that was really for me. Do you think it's a, a recipe issue or that particular iteration? Because I've seen a lot of people talk about how, no huge surprise, Different people's versions of Black is Beautiful taste different. Yeah, and I think that that was probably part of uh, the reasoning behind it. And I haven't had any other versions to compare it to, but if I was going to make a totally unsubstantiated guess, I would say it's just how they decided to make their version of it. So I think that actually says to our listeners, what about y'all? Have you had Black is Beautiful from multiple places? How different is it from uh, from each other? And uh are there versions of it that you really enjoy? Yeah, uh, uh, probably a lot of you have had a chance to try this beer. So please write in and let us know what your opinion of it is. I'd really like to hear. Yep, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. That's right, write us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Uh, <laughs> right. So now moving into the beer news, it would not be uh, uh, the beer news without some social media. And I'm just going to put this out there. Please, for the love of all things beery. 
stop sending and tagging me that Campbell's Chunky IPA meme, please. <laughs> We're well aware of it. <laughs> well, I just like every time I see it, uh, I I just kind of roll my eyes a little bit. And of course, of course, it's a fake beer. Let's make sure everybody understands that Campbell's is not making a, chunk, a chunky New England clam chowder IPA. No, really? I thought that they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're not helping things, bud. Um, so, yes, it is, it is not a real beer. And every time I see it, I just kind of want to hurk a little bit in my mouth. So, hey. Yeah, you know, uh, we've done weird stuff like this. So we know what it's about. So please leave us alone. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. I'm just. Ah. <laughs> All right. And then uh, speaking of things uh, going away, there was uh, news from uh, Jeff Allworth on his Beervana blog uh, that uh, about all about beer kind of disappearing from the web in easily accessible ways. Uh, if you don't know what all about beer was, because uh, beer media is dead, uh, all about beer was really kind of one of the first, I think, true beer enthusiast periodicals here in the U.S. And what I think of 40 years. Uh, 40 years old or so yeah i think that's about right um you know like I've, i actually have newsletters from the falcons that talk about when it first started you know encouraging people to to subscribe to it and zymergy and it ran for almost 40 years and then due to a series of unfortunate incidences that you can read all about on Jeff's blog, because Jeff has very large opinions about what happened to All About Beer. Uh, all About Beer went belly up, and then the magazine disappeared, but the website was still there, and I guess as of like last week or so, suddenly the website is no longer online, and the only way that you can go to go get a lot of a lot of really what was the foundational, informative uh, beer writing uh, for the American scene, you can only find it now in basically the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive. But, you know, it's a little bit more of a painful experience. Oh, it's not too bad. You know, web.archive.org and then just type in all about beer. And then you'll have your choice of uh, issues and times to look at. I already have all my choices of issues. <laughs> you have issues like nobody else, man. There we go. Now, speaking of issues and things that are, are, are around... We've obviously been talking about non-alcoholic beer now for a couple of years and the sort of the rise of non-alcoholic beer. And not too surprisingly, all the early ones all seem to rotate around the idea of, hey, we're going to make a lager or a pilsner type thing. You have companies like Athletic now that are making IPAs. Um, and Athletic actually just announced a stout a couple of weeks back. So that was kind of cool. And then, of course, Guinness came along. And Guinness is now actually releasing an alcohol-free stout. Um, which, given the fact that, I mean, Guinness is already sort of your low alcohol choice in a lot of American beer bars or American bars, I, I kind of thought it was interesting that they're now going to do a alcohol-free version in those big kind of uh, fancy draft cans that they've got. And they're expecting to have it rolled out by the end of the year, um, you know, across the world. What I thought was interesting is it's 70 calories per can as opposed to 177 calories uh, for the actual leaded version. <laughs> leaded version, huh? Mm -hmm. You know, and I saw a lot of people going, oh, this is terrible. Guinness is releasing an alcohol-free beer. 
I had exactly the opposite reaction. Uh, you know, I feel like good on them. Why not? Uh, there are people out there who want this. Uh, it's a, it's a marketing decision. And if people are going to buy it, that's what they're going to sell. And you really can't blame them. Yeah, I want to get a look at the technology behind it. It said the article I read about it, and we'll include it in the show notes, said that it took them four years to develop it, which makes some sense because Guinness is going to be very careful releasing something called Stout uh, for fear of damaging the brand. But they, uh, they're they using a cold filtration method for removing the alcohol. Interesting. So, yeah, they're not doing anything. You know, There's been a lot of stuff recently with... Uh, you know, trying to use alternative fermentation critters or doing alternative formulations. We talked about some of that in the last episode with Lalamon. Um, but this is actually using an industrial uh, dealc process, but using col- uh, cold method as opposed to, you know, sort of the the way we traditionally think of it was like doing heat it under a vacuum. So I want to read up some more about this. If anybody's got good details on cold uh, cold filtration dealc. Send it my way, please, because I think that's kind of cool. I mean, now, look, it has absolutely zero practical purpose for homebrewers, but still kind of cool technology. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to read. Just don't feel like you're going to be doing it at home. Yeah, I'll be curious to see if it, if the Guinness Zero, if, if that doesn't become, like, for me, say, like, a choice that I would have, like, instead of having an iced coffee. Yeah, you're right. That could very well be it. And uh, another example of market pressures getting to a brewery uh, is Amagang, who has just announced that they're going to kind of like pull back on the Belgian beers that they've been making for years and are really noted for and concentrate more on, oh, my God, hazy IPA. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, uh, this this is a real shame to me. Uh, They make. Really, really great Belgian-style beers uh, to the point where they were bought by Duvel, what, like in 2003 or something like that, 2008? I don't recall exactly. Yeah, they, they were uh, Duvel's first American acquisition. Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, then Duvel bought Boulevard and a couple other American breweries, and now they're moving the uh, the whole operation uh, business-wise to Kansas City to kind of be centralized, put all the advertising out for there. But uh, Amagang is going to become known more for their uh, their IPAs and Pilsners uh, to their way of thinking, at least in their marketing department. Yeah, well, and specifically what's going on here, and you read the article, it's by Kate Bernal, who's a great writer, uh, like, like reading and watching her stuff. Um, Amagang's been going through some really bad shifts in terms of the business because it turns out people, at least in the American beer market, just aren't buying Belgian-style beers anymore. Or not as much, and they've been seeing continual declines, except for in two new beers that they've basically launched, uh, which is what uh, Neon Rainbows, which is their hazy IPA, mm. uh, <laughs> and unicorns and stuff like that too. Yeah, and uh, a Pilsner that they're calling uh, that they call Idle Days. Now Pilsner, I could kind of get myself behind. Um, still, yeah. Uh, but also very interesting, a beer called Deer Slayer, which they're making in a sub-brand called Contra, being marketed towards hunters and outdoor outdoorsmen's, sold in 19.2-ounce cans. In uh, gas stations? In gas stations, which is like, man, if you stop and you think about Amagang and like their their fancy presentation with those great glass bottles and the corks and the cages and all that, 
to a 19.2 oil can bought in a gas station. It's, <laughs> you know, um, you got to do what you got to do to stay alive, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, of course, that that's the big thing is like beer is a business. It's not uh, just done something for passion. Um, it's just uh, it makes me a little sad. Yeah, um, I, I agree, man. Uh, I would almost rather have them go away <laughs> than do that. I guess in a way they kind of are. Huh? Well, in some ways, uh, my my hope would be that if they can sustain enough profit growth from Neon Rainbows and Idle Days and this uh, Deer Slayer, that they can keep those beers around. Because I, I think it would be uh, the world would be a lot poorer if we didn't have the Amagang. Belgian beers, you know, like the Hennepin was obviously, I think, a lot of people's first introduction to the idea of a Saison, even though it's not a terrible classic Saison. Sorry, snobbery. Um, but also, I'd be sad if like things like Three Philosophers went away. Uh, yeah, really. I mean, I would too, but let's face it, uh, they're not in business for altruistic reasons. Exactly. So, in the meanwhile, if you get a chance, they have, they still, even though the sales and marketing crew are moving to Kansas City along with uh, Boulevard and Firestone Walkers, uh, the, the Cooperstown Brewery has been refreshed and has a big area for everybody to kind of go hang out in. It's just, go support them. I think, I think it's probably the, the reason I would go to Cooperstown as opposed to the Baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's both, really. Yep. So, hey. Uh, it's just interesting, and like I said on my Facebooks, it's kind of unfortunate and makes me a little sad, but, uh, well, here's to the business. Yep, that's right. That's the way things work. Okay, let's, uh, let's bring things back up, shall we? Let's head over to the brewery, and we're going to be talking about, uh, books and brewing. So stick around, we're going to be right back. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. From the Malt Innovation Center, Great Western Malting has released two new products. The first is Biscuit Rye, perfect for your next brewing or distilling experiment. It strikes a pleasant balance between toasted biscuit-forward flavors and classic rye spice. The second is Light Munich, a long-requested iteration of their popular traditional Munich, which brings some sweet malty complexity and a hint of copper color to your next recipe. Look for it at your local homebrew store and request it if they haven't stocked up yet.
Welcome back to the brewery. We're sitting here, and there's a lot of gleaming stainless steel around. There's steam rising. There's just all kinds of stuff going on. And we wanted to let you know about uh, something new going on on Facebook. If you happen to be a Facebook user, the Brewers Book Club. Yeah, and you would never guess what book they decided to start with. <laughs> Yeah, um, this th- is a, a group that was started by a guy from the AHA forum, and he went to Facebook and set it up uh, so that uh, we could have occasional chats about various brewing books, and uh, we're honored that they chose our book, Experimental Brewing, to be the first one to be discussed. So if you are interested in getting in on this, and I don't think we've set a date yet for the first one, but you, if you're on Facebook, you go to Brewers Book Club. That's all one word, Brewers Book Club. And uh, you can uh, put in your application to join the group, and I assume it will be uh, approved shortly, and you can get in on the book discussions there. Yeah, read a book. It's good for you. Now, Denny, you've you've been the last time we talked, you had been playing around with your G seventy that uh, that you had on the loan. What you been brewing, man? Well, um, every fall of just about this time, I brew up a batch of my No Tie Brown Ale. It's uh, an American brown, uh, ostensibly. I'm sure it wouldn't exactly hit the guidelines, but it was the first beer that I ever won an award for. So it's got a real special place in my heart. Uh, Paula actually took a picture of some of our trees around here for the label and got an award for the label. Uh, so usually what happens in the fall is I brew up a five-gallon batch, get about halfway through it, and go, damn, I really like this beer, and end up having to brew another one. So uh, since I had the G70 here, I figured I'll just do a 12-gallon batch and get it out of the way to start with. So uh, that's what I did. Uh, it's a pretty straight-ahead brew. The only thing that's at all different about it is that there are hop additions every 15 minutes. There's hop additions at 60, 45, 30, 15, and 0. Why? Because the recipe that I based it on had it like that. Uh, it came from a, a book called The Seven Barrels Brewery by Greg Noonan, a great Great recipe book that uh, is out of print. You may be able to find a copy of it around someplace. But uh, I use a lot of his recipes as the basis for mine because they are really, really great. In terms of the every 15-minute hops, I've tried it without that, and it just didn't seem the same. You know, I've tried doing it other ways, you know, putting some of the additions that would be, you know, in the middle up early, making them late. Uh, it just didn't turn out the same. So now I just sit there and I add in my hops every 15 minutes. Brew went totally smoothly. Uh, G70 is such a great piece of machinery, well-designed, easy to use, that uh, in four and a half hours, I had uh, 12 gallons of beer in my fermenters, and that includes all the cleaning up and everything else. So it was a, a great brew day. The beer is fermenting away happily out there with, go ahead, guess the yeast. No. <laughs> with why yeast 1450, what else? Um, and uh, I hope in a couple weeks uh, I'll be able to start drinking that. Well, and that's good. I mean, it's always nice to be able to knock out you know something that is, well, a staple. 
yeah. get it done get it done in a hurry. Um, I do I do like it on those grandfathers, and I think this applies to most of those all in one systems. I do like the ability. F- it just seems to be a faster brew day, you know, a little, a little bit more coordinated. Yeah, really, man. Everything, I mean, just goes so smoothly because the the system is so well thought out and so well integrated. And what I especially like is when I'm done, the cleanup is almost done before I realize it. Uh, you know, it's just easy and, and quick to, to use. And, uh, you know, I, I may have to, like, refuse to send this back to them. <laughs> I, I suspect they won't be very happy about that idea. Well, we'll see. Well, and then for me, I haven't had a chance really to, to brew recently because, again, fires, smoke, heat, etc. We're finally cooling down here in L.A., so yay, go team. Um, but I did get a chance to get a beer from a friend of mine who gave me a – well, I mean, he used my Saison uh, strain, right? Or, sorry, not my Saison strain, my, my Saison recipe, the one that I brew all the time. And he used a beta culture from the Yeast Bay. You know, we've had Nick on the show multiple times. Uh, that's called a Forager. And it's one of these cultures that he's been doing, which are found on various plants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's just, it's a really interesting yeast it was very phenolic i mean it was like actually more phenolic than i than i thought uh or that i should expect and it, but it still felt farmhousey and saisonny um looking at the yeast bay's website on it unfortunately the yeast is apparently uh, out of stock at the moment go figure um he did this in conjunction with wolves and people's farmhouse brewery in uh the willamette valley wine country and he basically said it's named by it's named after uh, honeybees, and it was basically you know they were they were trying to figure out like what they could do. They isolated it from a spring harvest honeycomb, and it's like an STA one plus uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae uh, variant of Boulardi, which I had not heard of before. Boulardi, B O U L A R D I I, um, and it is phenolic and Sauvignon Blanqui and limey and very dry and earthy in the finish. So it's very kind of cool. I've, I've fortunately, because my friend gave me a bottle of his, he also sent me along a yeast cake slug. So it's going to be the next, next yeast I'm going to uh, try just to see what that thing can do. Wow. That's very interesting. And so he must still be up in Portland, huh? Yep, he is. So uh, it, it'll be, uh, it'll be uh, interesting to see. I mean, he's still doing all of his work is in Portland the yeast is still being produced out of uh, White Labs down in San Diego. You can still buy yeast from him on his website, theyeastbay.com. Uh, and interestingly, he still has the uh, like the the bridge on the 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 labels, even though he's not in San Francisco anymore. Well, there are bridges in Portland. Yeah, yeah. You look at that bridge and you tell me that's a Portland bridge. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, you know what? After all this talk about brewing, I think we need to talk about some brewing ingredients. So we're going to head over to the lounge and talk to our buddy Mike Brennan from uh, BSG about hops and ask him some questions, and hopefully we'll all get a lot smarter. So stick around. We're going to be right back. 
Why East invites you to the new season with our Hearth Private Collection release, featuring sophisticated, nuanced options for winter beers that connect you to the warmth of the holidays. 2000 Budvar Lager produces a rich malt profile and subtle fruit undertones and finishes crisp and dry. 1581 Belgian Stout is ideal for any Belgian specialty ale. This strain creates moderate esters without significant phenolics or spiciness. And 3864 Canadian Belgian Ale complements the collection with banana and fruit esters, mild phenolics, and a hint of acidity. With their wide accommodation of temperature tolerance, brewing styles, and preferences, you can try these Y-East Originals now through the end of December. Find out more at yeastlab.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. Welcome to the lounge. Get comfy. It's time to talk hops with Mike Brennan from Brewer's Supply Group, BSG. Uh, Mike is an old friend. We've known him for quite a while. He uh, used to be at Pico Brew when we first met him, and he's moved into uh, BSG now where he uh, kind of takes care of the homebrewing side of things for them. And Mike has been going around doing a lot of talks via Zoom. I shouldn't say going around, going around virtually, uh, doing talks to clubs about hops. So, uh, you know, if any of you guys out there need to have your club talk to about hops, I'd love to volunteer Mike for it. Mm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, let us know and we'll put you in touch with him and, uh, we'll, hopefully he won't, uh, hate us too much for all that. At any rate, we're going to ask Mike some questions about hops and let him impart his knowledge to us. So sit back and relax, grab a beer unless you're driving, and uh, listen to us talking to Mike Brennan from BSG about hops. Yes, it's time for you to learn even more hop chemistry. That's right. We have our dear buddy Mike Brennan on the line with us today. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, Denny. Drew, how are you guys doing? Thank you for having me join the conversation. Oh, man, thank you for finding time for us. Uh, you know, hops are the, really the hot thing these days, and they're the, the sexy part of brewing, I always say. So we wanted to kind of like get some of your take on hops. Um, so first of all, before we do this, why don't you go through a little bit of your background in home brewing? Sure. I started home brewing, I don't know, probably about 25 years ago. While I was in college, I started brewing with a college roommate. We were mainly buying, you know, brew kits from a local uh, brew shop, uh, the old R&R brew shop in Sacramento. 
And we were only interested in really making a lot of good cheap beer. I don't think either one of us really cared about, you know, learning about brewing process. I didn't really get off the stovetop and start doing my own thing until probably about a year or two after college and started diving into my own home brewing. And then uh, during the early 2000s, I started really getting dug into the industry, a lot of friends opening up breweries. I uh, got into BJCP not too long after that, and then that's what led me ultimately taking over and bringing uh, National Homebrew Competition first round to Northern California. That was, I want to say, 2013. Uh, a couple of years later, joining Pico Brew, uh, where I worked for about uh, almost four years. Uh, I've been with BSG now for two years, and that's been managing primarily uh, the handcraft uh, side of things over here in the Pacific Northwest, Western United States. Uh, I also sit on the American Homebrewers Association Competition Subcommittee and the Industry Subcommittee. And I used to be uh, the MBAA's District Northern California Membership Coordinator as well. And, of course, I've been talking at HomebrewCon these last few years, uh, mostly on hops. Wow. <laughs> you are involved, man. So let me just ask you real quick. Do you have a favorite style to brew or a favorite recipe to brew? You know, it's, it's like saying what's your favorite song, uh, but I do have my groups of favorites. Uh, I still live in that old German wide love Doppelbox. They're some of my very favorite things. I'm uh, As much as I talk about hops because it's interesting, I'm still a big malt guy. I, I love Munich malt. I love everything done with it. Um, Vienna's are wonderful. Um, so for my own brewing, which hasn't, you know, obviously haven't had a lot of time to brew this year with how busy uh, handcraft has been, but yeah, those, you know, I like the darker beers. I love brewing, um, you know, stouts and porters. In fact, I brewed a version of your uh, bourbon vanilla imperial stout, mm. I want to say probably about five, six, seven years ago. I really got into that and started playing with different iterations of it. Cool, man. I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> These days, as busy as I am, I'm actually doing a lot of cider and um, randomly a lot of wine kits because they're new to me. You know, we live here in... Uh, grape-growing region, so I never learned a lot about wine kits, but now with BSG, you know, we represent the R.J. Spagnol's line. I've been making a lot of wine kits. They're kind of fun. Cool. Yeah, and, and they're easy, too. Very easy. Yeah, it's, it's like bacon bread. Follow the instructions on the box, and you're going to get some wine. Yeah. Um, cider, of course, you know, being up here in the PNW, there's just so much, you know, so many good apples. I just... Uh, Finished fermenting out uh, 10 gallons of uh, Gravenstein uh, apple juice that I got from uh, Tony up at Micro Homebrew. We love Tony. Yeah, Tony's Tony's just salt-of-the-earth guy. Uh, But, you know, he brokers for uh, a couple local uh, apple growers. So got a hold of that beautiful, you know, that late summer Gravenstein juice that's only around for, I don't know, maybe three, four weeks out of the year. Right. Uh, Makes a very delicate cider. So just finished that. Just finished... uh, little light French oak on it for about two weeks. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. We have a we have a bunch of apple trees in the cider press, so uh, every year we uh, harvest the apples, press them, and, and uh, ferment out the juice, too. But I never do anything fancy it. with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's coming next is my own uh, – I want my own uh, uh, macerator and press because there's plenty of apples right here to harvest. What, so. what, what you want, man, is a Corell Cider Press, C-O-R-R-E-L-L. They're made just a few miles down the road from me. They are probably right. the best press in the world. Ah. Well, hey, you know, th- thank you, everybody, for listening to Experimental Cider Making. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> yeah, really. Okay, okay. <laughs> 
I, I think we got the hint. So let's get back to beer uh, and, and hops specifically. And let's start off like real general. And what, what I want to ask you is, what is the most important thing homebrewers should know about hops? You know, when you asked me that question, I thought about it. It was a pretty quick answer for me. And that is hops are produce. They are a harvested product just like you buy produce at the store, which by in turn means you need to think about the freshness of your hops. And that's not just crop year. I don't like to get people stuck that only the current crop year is the good one. If hops are properly stored and you pay attention to hop, you know, your hop storage index and you take care of them well, you're going to still have great hops. But they are produce, which means even as much as we try to blend in batches that they're variable just like when you buy any other fruit or vegetable at the store, there's a variability within the batch. So we try to, you know, as a, as a hop manufacturer or producer like, like a BSG, that those hops are blended based upon their, you know, their, their attributes, their alpha acids and their oil contents. But there's always a little variable in there and not to get too stuck on it. Um, that's important that people think about that. Wow, that's a that's a really good point, man. And you know, and having been to Hop and Brew School a, a number of times, that that's really driven home to you. But I don't know if homebrewers really think of them so much as that, as opposed to say just a commodity. You know, that's the problem with you know. I think there's a perception. You know, we buy our hops in frequently one ounce or eight ounce bags, and when we buy a bag, I mean. They're, they're nitrogen flushed and they're hanging on a nice little peg usually or sitting in a, you know, hopefully in a refrigerator at a homebrew shop. But they, because of that packaging, they look like they are, you know, uh, indefinitely stable and they're not, you know, they, they we, you want to keep your hops at freezing. You want to keep them in that nitrogen flushed bag. Uh, I, you know, I've bought hops uh, in larger quantities and broken them down and I've vacuum sealed them with my vacuum sealer and had pretty good results with that, but, you know, uh, oxygen is the enemy of your hops. Uh, temperature is the enemy of your hops. So, you know, heat. So keeping them frozen, keeping them bagged up. I still see people throwing them in Ziploc bags and I'll see them sitting in a buddy's refrigerator. It's like, yeah, that's, that's not going to do your hops a whole lot of good for what you want. You're going to lose a lot of that character notes about those hops. A lot of these compounds that we're talking about these days, uh, my whole talks on hop terpenes and thiols these days, these are very delicate molecules. Like all volatile molecules, they're very susceptible to oxygenation. And they're also um, uh, measured in very small amounts, you know, in the parts per billion and even high parts per trillion range. So it doesn't take much to damage them. So let's let's talk terpenes and thiols, because that might be something that uh, homebrewers don't generally know a lot about. What are it's terpenes true. and thiols, and why the heck does it matter? It's true. We've, we've, you know, traditional homebrewing, I mean, you know, I'm old school, you know, we're I'm 25 years into it, and our hot bags always just had alpha acid content, and sometimes they even had a beta acid content, even though none of us knew what the beta acid content was for. And as people started experimenting, you know, we all started experimenting more and more into you know, more hot flavor and aroma, and we kind of started moving away from, uh, you know, our, our our weaponized IPAs back in the day of, you know, trying to make a 100 IBU beer, uh, we started paying more attention to, oh, what's actually creating the aromas? What's creating the flavors? You know, it's not alpha acids. It's these other compounds. And there are right now 
probably 400-ish compounds that we've named in hops at this point. And, but we also know that there's probably more than a thousand compounds that are in hops. It's complex. The problem is that because they are measured in these very small amounts, uh, and yet they have a sensory threshold, we can actually detect them. They're just hard to elicit. So there's not a lot of lab techniques that have been around traditionally to focus on identifying and naming those molecules. Now we're getting more into it, which is now why we're hearing about, uh, of course, terpenes have been around. You know, people are quite more interested. Those are obviously a higher fraction of our uh, hop essential uh, oil content in our fraction. But those thiols, those sulfur-containing compounds, uh, they're much more fleeting, much more difficult to, uh, you know, actually isolate and name it. However, we're all really into them. You know, when we get into a beer that has, uh, you know, those, uh, what we're going into, like, stone fruit notes, um, that's especially, you know, the stone fruit, black currant, those are all driven by these other highly volatile compounds of thiols. Most brewers actually, well, most beer drinkers already know one of the thiols, which is, uh, is it 3MBT? And by the way, everybody uses those initials because the names are unpronounceable. They're just <laughs> ugly. So um, just just go with the initials and be good with it. But 3MBT, is the, that's the skunk light struck. You, you know, uh, that light struck molecule can be detected in, I think it's 20 parts or 25 parts per trillion. And I don't know if that, that's almost impossible to think about. So yeah. I'm going to actually break it down real quick. If you want to imagine in your mind, what does it mean for one part per million? You know, something that we measure IBUs and we measure, you know, the, you know, quantity of isomerized alpha acids. If you take a, a playing card out of a deck of cards and you go put it out on the 50 yard line of a football field and you visualize that from the stands that you can see that one card on the football field, that's a good way to visualize about a part per million. If we, stick that card in the middle of a thousand football fields, there's your one part per billion. That's already getting pretty small. When we start talking about thiols and we're talking about things in the parts per trillion, uh, better way to think about it, think of a drop of water in 18 million gallons of water. Wow. <laughs> and yet, uh, somewhere in our olfactory senses and taste buds, we can pick some of those up at that quality, certain ones. And that's what we're finding in hops. Wow, that's really remarkable. Uh, it is, you know, and really fun to try to wrap your head around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, even even with your examples, I I can't even imagine some of those numbers. You well, know, yeah, I, I don't know how much. Well, water I mean, I think Olympic pool. So I don't know if that's eighteen well, million gallons or not. Well, I mean, I think uh, a lot of uh, there are a lot of pools that will hold like a million gallons. Yeah. So one drop in eighteen pools. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh a very fleeting amount of something. But as we look at, you know, a, a lot of these uh, terpenes and stuff, so like we mentioned, you know, real popular ones that we talk about, like uh, I know you guys had Scott Janish on the show a few weeks ago. I didn't listen to it, but, you mm -hmm. know, his his book, uh, The New IPA, is, you know, he I, it's it's the reference, and I've used his book a lot, along with uh, Scott LaFontaine and uh, Tom Shellhammer's work at OSU to pull a lot of this information together. Right. You know, uh, Scott's done such an amazing job at collecting this information, but, you know, I think he talks about some of these compounds like, you know, 4-MSP, things like that. These are, you know, I want to say 4-MSP is a, uh, like about one part per trillion we can detect it in a beer with all those other right. things. And, on. by the way, I... <laughs> 
by the way, I just I, I just double checked the uh, myself and, and the math. So an Olympic sized swimming pool holds about six hundred and sixty thousand gallons. Oh wow! So one that would be one more. drop of water in a little over twenty seven Olympic sized swimming pools. <laughs> that's, that's a that's a lot. I can't even comprehend <laughs> that. So very little thing. I have recently changed my dry hop technique based on a, on a blog post uh, by BSG that came out last January called Reevaluating Dry Hop Techniques. I've been going to the, the short cold method, basically usually around uh, 48 hours at 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and it, I mean, you know, it is so counterintuitive, but so freaking effective. And you know, again, according to this paper, it says that that's you know all it takes to really extract the thiols out of hops. Why are people still dry hopping for two weeks at room temperature? I think we still get stuck in uh, we'll call it brewer's folklore. Ooh, you know, we, yes. we all, if you think about this, you know, for those of us that were you know brewing in you know the eighties or the nineties, we we worked with whatever we had out there. There wasn't a lot of good sources. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of old, you know, there were some books floating around, but, you know, we didn't have a great set of reference standards. So we're just, you know, I heard this from the sky, so I did that. And I still, you know, look at like some of my old brewing notes because I'm one of those nerds that keeps all my brewing records. And I'm going, wow, yeah, I used to dry hop for 10 days and realizing it's like, well, it was a great way to get a lot of grassy flavors and a lot of hay in my beer, but maybe not necessarily something else. So, there was a, I'm not gonna remember the author, but there was a paper that was done by another OSU person about nine years ago that talked about, uh, the amount of time, uh, to draw aromatics into a beer. And it's like, you know, in a dry hop. And it's, yeah, like within 18 hours, you can find like 75, 80% of what you want to draw in is already in by that point. The rest of the time, it's kind of a point of diminishing returns. And I think though, some of us that have been brewing for a long time, we're still stuck in that idea that we have to, you know, leave it in there a long time. And it's kind of the same foreign idea, like, you know, with the, the, the uh, Kavik yeast, I can never pronounce it right, that you're going to, for a minute, 90 some odd degrees and do what? You know, it's just it's a very different way to do something. Yeah, right. Well, uh, this paper, I'm looking at it right now, there's one sentence here that says, aroma intensity was the same for beers dry hopped with pellets for six hours and four days. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. And that's that means like it's all in there pretty quickly. It's almost like, you know, when you make a cup of tea, you know, your your tea bag's done in three to five minutes and you just leave it in there. You're not getting anything more except for maybe some more bittering things, you know, from tannins and stuff. Not that that's gonna happen the same with hops, but there's a again, there's a point of diminishing returns. Yeah, and then and the, the hops actually start reabsorbing some of the the thiols that they've given off. So that just That's right. You know, there's it, resorption and there's also the Something, a, a concept that people should be thinking about with these, especially with hop oils, uh, with terpenes and with thiols is there's a balance, picture a scale in your mind between solubility and volatility. So solubility, the ability of getting it out of the hop and into our beer or into our work before it's beer versus the volatility. How easy is it for that molecule to flash off and get lost in uh, vapor and disappear? Uh, these also can be locked up. So thiols in the presence of some oxygen, they can, they'll bind with the oxygen and they, it renders them odorless. 
So they bind up and they just they, they vanish. They're gone. Wow. A lot of the work around files comes from uh, a lot, of, especially white winemakers. Uh, you look at like the New Zealand folks who, you know, are working with like the Sauvignon Blancs. Those winemakers down there are much more attuned to working with and uh, uh, eliciting files because that's a big you know that when you stick your nose into a glass of you know like a Marlboro uh, Sauvignon Blanc and you get those you know, quote, gooseberry notes and things like that, those are all file-driven. So winemakers are exceptionally attuned to those. So they've got some uh, enzymes like our wine team works with. There's one uh, that we sell called uh, Zimarom. Uh, and it's it's a it's a, um, a, a family of enzymes that help elicit multiple things. They use it for different things, but one of them is to help elicit file uh, release. I haven't played with it in beer yet, and I've been wanting to do that sometimes. <laughs> so... Do you think that maybe you need to adjust your dry hopping technique to the kind of hops that you're using? Uh, for instance, again, this paper points out that uh, linalool extraction time was uh, reduced when dry hopping at colder temperatures. But if you're using a hop that's not high in linalool, do you think that you need to use a, a different technique on it? Yes, I do, because it also kind of leads into what you're, maybe the outcome product you're looking for. So, like, you know, betamercine, little lul, those are, they're fairly soluble in water. They also, they quickly volatilize off in the boil. This is why when we add a hop that's high in little lul in, in the, in the kettle, it, those, those things vanish. It goes back to that, you know, they're highly volatile. They flash off. Geraniol's a little bit slower, but then you get these other ones that, you know, when we bring those in, they um, and we're and we're and we're doing that at the at the dry hop. We're getting uh, they're staying they're they're going to stay in solution and they're not going to volatilize off. So then, basically, you need to look at what your goals are for the beer and what type of hops you're thinking about using in order to decide how to use them, right? Yeah, and kind of finishing up because I wanted to think about how we translate this over to that other mystery thing that we're always talking about, which is biotransformation. It's kind of an overused word because, remember, everything that yeast does is a biotransformation, right? Uh, however, we can uh, yeast can take many of those uh, terpenes, some of those terpene families like geraniol, linalool, and transform them into something else through a metabolic process. Uh as well as like you know, um, glu- what a glucoside is. You hear that term, you know. Again, I, I don't want to sound like a chemistry lecturer, and I don't want to freak people out with the terms. But I also remind people that brewer, you already know what an alpha acid is. You already know what isomerizing is. You can build your vocabulary a little bit more and at least understand, you know, what are these things. Well, if you bind up a, you know, a terpene to a sugar molecule, that's a glycoside. It's all it's just simple words, but. Moving past that and back to the hop question is if you want to do something where you're trying to get the yeast to change one of those hop components to something else and express differently in your beer, you know, those conditions and those hops that you choose and when you add them is going to determine when that, uh, if that biotransformation can occur. For example, uh, adding those hops, you know, in a hop standard whirlpool and drawing in some of those, uh, you know, geraniol, linalool in, in that part of the process, or adding, you know, uh, somewhere in the earlier part of fermentation. And I see all sorts of brewers' notes out there from people who are adding, you know, at high croissant or adding when they're down to about 10, 20 gravity, about 80% done. 
they're adding hops to where those those hops are going to continue to go through some process with the yeast. And there's of course many variables with that, but so that hop timing is going to determine uh, significantly how that hop is going to express. So, is there a way to predict what you're going to get out the other side when you use biotransformation? Well, this kind of falls into that category. You know, I, I, I tell people uh, when we talk about this, I break it into three parts. There's those things we know, there's those things we think we know, and then there's those things we are still trying to discover. Those biotransformation pathways, uh, there's a few of them that are reasonably well described and other ones that we're still trying to figure out. Uh, if you look at like the, I believe it's in, uh, one of Scott LaFontaine and Tom Shellhammer's papers, they have the geranial pathway. So they, they look at it and they point out some of the, um, enzymes that are present. Sometimes it's based on pH, uh, of things that can at least lead to it. So right now, I, what I tell homebrewers is we're still in the experimenting phase. So if you set up the optimal conditions for these things to happen, you're good, you, a good chance you're going to get something to uh, happen in biotransformation. As far as predictability, I think some brewers have definitely figured out some routines, and if they're not changing their variables, they're going to get, they're going to get a similar product each time within reason. But I wouldn't say that there's a you know there's a there's an exact roadmap yet for any of these biotransformation right. processes that's highly predictable. Yeah, you can't predict it. But but I want I want an exact roadmap. <laughs> I'm, I'm sick and tired of having to try yeah, it. Really, man. I have lots of pretty pictures that show these roadmaps, so, but I couldn't tell you uh, <laughs> that we can lock it down just yet. Somebody just but, tell me what to do. Don't make me think. I was good. I, I joked around with uh, Scott Janish that we're going to start having our our hop packaging carry like all sorts of instructions and different numbers and all these new factors that, you know, it's going to be like rocket science. Right. Well, I'll email you guys over. I have my, uh, uh, from my uh, talk that I give, I have, it's called my uh, Biotransformers pre-flight checklist. <laughs> it's a work in progress. But I basically, I, I, I thought about this like you just asked, said, what, what are all the things I need to think about? Or as many of them as I can that as a home brewer I can control without, you know, uh, without a quality assurance lab down the hallway from me, right? And there's a lot of things, if you think about it, and it's things we actually already know, it's just all in one place. So water chemistry and how important that is, you know, that, sulf- that sulfate to chloride ratio of how we want our hops to express. And, of course, that weird inverse that you have to do for a, uh, for a hazy or New England-style IPA. Uh, managing other parts of, you know, don't, not oversparging your mash so you're not introducing excess tannins. Uh, layering your, uh, remember, it's a, a really important one. Remembering that when you're working with hops, it's all about layering hops to create dimension. When somebody says, yeah, I'm going to put citra in, my next question is, well, when and how frequently are you going to do that? If I'm going to put four ounces of citra into a beer, am I going to do it all at once at the end of the dry hop, or am I going to put a couple ounces in at my at my whirlpool, and I drop some in at you know eighty percent fermentation and a little bit more at the end. And you could think about this: you could take one of these hops and make the exact same beer and just simply change your dry hopping your, your hopping schedule. I'll call it your post boil hopping schedule from whirlpool all through all the way through to dry hop, and do that ten different times. You're going to get ten quite different hop signatures out of your beer. And that'll keep you really entertained. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. That... And one more note with that. I remind people also that a lot of the hops that are rich in geranial, rich in linalool, and also have uh, a lot of that, that one of those uh, 
hot files, the one that's called 4MSP. Forget the name, just remember it's the black current one. Hops that are rich in that include a lot of the sea hops, Cascade, Centennial, and Chinook. All those, uh, all three of those hops on all uh, is on all those lists. Uh, you don't have to go hunting around for an exotic, hard to find hop. I mean, I know sometimes the New Zealand hops are really hard to get. Galaxy's perpetually hard to get from Australia. These 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 compounds, these oils, and these files that we're looking for exist in hops that are commonplace in our market. So it's you know try the hops that you were brewing with seven or eight years ago, just try using them in a different way. Uh, you definitely also, you know, by kind of the corollary to that, is you also have to use the right yeast. You have to use a yeast that's biotransformation friendly, that has good high beta-glucosidase activity. So that's, there's more lists like that if you Google around. Off the top of my head, like uh, London Ale 3, you know, the Y yeast strain was at 1318. Yes. That one's uh, a good choice. Uh, uh, BRY97 for one of the dry ones. That's a good choice. These are, uh, you know, these are yeasts that, uh, they all tend to, by the way, they all tend to kind of be lower flocculators, lower attenuators, and they're all reliable high ester producers. So, you know, using the right yeast, play with those common hops. You know, again, don't have to chase down the, uh, the exotic hop. Wow. Well, that was like uh, when Scott Janish was talking about the survivables, right? You know, which has been his big topic recently. They gave a, a list of hops out there that were big in survivables. And, of course, there were some of the ones that, that we all know, like Idaho 7 and uh, Citra's on there. The one that made me laugh was uh, um, Brewer's Gold, oh, which cool. is about as throwbacky a hop as you can. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a throwback to a throwback. Yeah, it is. And that was – and and that works in that world. Absolutely. So maybe uh, – and so maybe stop chasing all the uh, all the the hot new things. Go back and look at what's already there. Except when well, was the last time you saw Brewers Gold? You, know, you, you can go to most hot uh, producers, and they should have somewhere on their website. They should have the actual spec sheet. So you know, I'm, I know obviously with BSG we have our spec sheets. You can go to the any of the BSG websites and go find the hops. Go to the bottom, and you'll see a spec sheet. You can click on that. And we, you know, we're getting into the, my favorite thing. I, I love spider graphs, you know, where it has a, a layout and it tells you the relative intensities of what that hop's going to bring to your beer in general. And at the bottom of the page, it, uh, we try to give oil fractions. So rather, and I tell, you know, rather than saying, I want to brew with a high oil hop, I want to ask you, I want you to, I want you to ask what oils are you looking for? And what, what attributes are you trying to get from that hop? And then you can tailor that addition. So this doesn't, you know, this process doesn't have to be, this is not a redefining of how to brew beer by any means. It's simply optimizing, you know, your hopping schedule and wisely choosing hops that are going to work well for it. You know, this is, you were not, uh, you know, there's plenty of, at this point now with obviously Scott's book out and a few other ones, the sources are easy to find and experiment. You know, that's obviously what your guys' whole gig is. So it's what homebrewing mostly is. Boy, that's true, whether you want it to be or not, huh? <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Mike, um, I, I was one just, quick note yeah. on yeast is I also wanted to mention, uh, Mitch Steele mentioned a while back about uh, using fresh pitch yeast. Uh, we find that people who are using repitches, at least at the brewery level, they tend not to get as much um, effect out. We think it has to do maybe that uh, the the amount of budding scars on the yeast cell wall might uh, affect like the hop absorption. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, man. I mean, it's like, and I, you know, I'm not into biotransformation. It's not something I, I use in the beers that I make, partially because I don't make New England IPAs, partially because I like to know what's coming out the other side. You know, I'm just a control sure. freak. But uh, the, it's really, really interesting to hear about how, how all that works and how the yeast strain affects it. And, uh, you know, we're pretty much out of time now, but I really hope that uh, you'll come back sometime and uh, we'll talk about oils and what oils do what and uh, how people can kind of design a brew around the oils and their hops. I'd love to. Be a good time. <laughs> yeah, man, really. Uh, okay, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. This has been like mind-blowingly informative and uh, I'll, I'll look forward to the next session and and send that send that pre-flight checklist over and we'll throw it up on the website for people to see for sure absolutely denny it's a pleasure to mind drew it's really great to talk to you both as yeah you, hopefully we'll be able to do this in person one of these days or at least at least six feet apart we can still have a beer <laughs> <laughs> there you go man okay buddy take care of yourself and we'll talk to you soon gentlemen it's a pleasure to talk to you take good care all right bye-bye Cheers. Well, I mean, and do you remember the days when hops were simple? Because <laughs> I remember the days when hops were simple. And yeah, man. Be- I mean, between this and, and Scott Janish and everything else, it's just, good Lord, it hurts. Well, you know what, man? That's that's progress for you. Uh, things move forward. You keep learning more about things. Uh, you just have to be able to relate what you learn to what comes through in your beer. So uh, hopefully you guys will take uh, some of Mike's info there and go out and start uh, experimenting with hops, playing with them, and see how it works for you. Absolutely. And again, I would say pay more attention because I think we're going to be getting even more changes down the pike about what we understand about hops and, well, particularly what we understand about hops and how we use them. Yeah, and then we'll be forced to try and understand something that I don't really understand. More chemistry, more chemistry. Yay, 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 yay. (laughs) (laughs) okay enough of this stuff we're going to take a quick break here when we come back we'll have some questions and answers we'll have a quick tip we'll have something other and then we'll wrap things up and get the heck out of here so stick around getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, everybody. 
We're going to answer some questions here before we move on to the quick tip and something other. Uh, this one comes from Nathan Wilson. My name is Nathan. I'm a longtime listener and really enjoy the podcast. My friends and I do a party gal brew twice a year, which we started after listening to the Brew Files episode 41, Party in My Pots. I love that name. We really enjoy the process and are always looking for ways to improve the beer and refine our methods. I always use a yeast cake from a smaller brew for the first running's big beer to ensure we have plenty of healthy yeast. I also have had success using wine whip to aerate my wort before pitching the yeast. I have recently gone to oxygenating the wort with O2 through a diffusion stone before pitching. I also like to aerate or oxygenate my beers more than once when they are big beers, so 1090 or higher OG. Question. I have been reviewing how to brew, and in it, John Palmer says that he does not recommend oxygenating or using a blade, i.e. my whip, to aerate or oxygenate the wort after pitching the yeast because pure oxygen is toxic to the yeast, and the blade can destroy the yeast cells. Have either of you found this to be an issue, and do you recommend switching to a pump that pushes in air instead of pure O2, or is it safe to say that since I haven't had a problem yet, it is more likely a minimal concern? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Thanks for your help in advance. Stay safe and keep up the great work. (laughs) Like so many things in the homebrewing world, there is a difference between the theoretical and the actual. Uh, Yeah, uh, pure O2 can be toxic to yeast. Yes, using a paddle or whip to aerate can uh, cause cell shear and, and damage the yeast cells. But you hit the nail on the head there, Nathan, buddy. You said, since I haven't had a problem yet, is it more than likely a minimal concern? And the answer is abso-freaking-lutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this is uh, theoretically the reason why you shouldn't use a stir plate for yeast starters is because uh, it can cause cell shear. And that, you know, that is why all the yeast manufacturers use shaker tables for propagation rather than stir plates. But come on. I mean, we're making beer at home. It's not a big freaking deal. Uh, it's working for you. You have the evidence right there. I, I would say, I, I would say that you have proven that it's not an issue for you. So trust yourself. Yeah. I mean, again, there's the theoretical, you know, there's the optimal, uh, and homebrewing hits neither of those. So I don't think, (laughs) I don't think in terms of the things that you're doing as a home brewer that you are going to induce enough cell damage via your whip or via your oxygen to be able to cause this to be a huge issue. And when I do my Falcon's claws, I actually oxygenate that sucker twice after pitching with pure oxygen just to be able to make sure that that logger strain will keep moving. So. And right. that's about the worst case scenario that I can think of. It's a logger. It's extremely high gravity, 1140. And yes, I'm oxygenating at 48 hours. Um, and that still works. So I would not worry about it. And, and real quickly, let's go through one more time why it is that you oxygenate or aerate. The yeast uses the oxygen to synthesize sterols, which are fatty acids, and they use those to keep the cell walls flexible to make it easier for the yeast cells to bud reproduce. The more healthy yeast you pitch, the less need there is for aeration or oxygenation because there's less need for cell replication. Uh, I don't do anything specifically 
to aerate or oxygenate my beers, including big ones. But part of that is because I pump across the room and up high into a fermenter and it gets, you know, some air pickup from that. Um, the, you, you need to find your own trade off between aeration and pitching yeast. And it's always better to err on the side of caution, uh, like you do when you, uh, aerate more than once, Nathan. Uh, so, you know, I would say keep doing what you're doing, man. If the beer you're making is beer that you like and uh, your process is something you like, why change anything just because some idiot like Palmer said to? Or us. Or us. <laughs> Especially us. And I say idiot like Palmer because he's a dear friend. Uh, he was the technical editor of our latest book, and uh, I'm sure he'll understand and not hit me too hard next time I see him. There you go. And plus, he's my neighbor. Yeah, so, that too. <clears throat> all right, so that's it for our questions this week. Don't forget, you can always ask us questions at questions at experimentalbrew.com, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Email us, send us a text message, smoke signals, whatever you do. You know, I think we've taken messages from face- Facebook before and brought them over here. So just give us your questions. We like answering them. And if you give us enough time, we can even actually try and get your reasonable answers. Uh, but now, I think it's time for us to finish up the show. And I'm going to bring you a, a real quick, quick tip. This is based on something that one of my friends did. Hop extract for homebrewers is becoming more a, a more popular thing for some homebrewers who are making IPAs and they want to make triple IPAs and have them make them nice and clean. You can go listen to the Brew Files episode where I talked with my friend Craig Chaplin about how he makes his uh, Plenty of the Younger clone and using hop extract, which is about the only way you're going to be able to do it. Well, a couple of other members of our club have started to adopt the use of hop extract, and the stuff is sticky. It's viscous. It's a pain in the butt. And so a lot of people are throwing cans of this in basically their HLT to you know warm it up, kind of like you do with uh, syrup or molasses. Well, all I can tell you is take a lesson from one of my friends. Don't throw an open can of hop extract into your HLT. Ooh. Well, in his defense, it wasn't really that he threw it in it just slipped and fell into the HLT while he was trying to warm it up. So don't do that because it turns it turns out it takes about an hour for you to clean your HLT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that is some sticky stuff. Even when you use it correctly, it's a real hassle not to get it stuck to the side of your kettle. There you go. And then also, are something other than beer because life is not just beer. Just released as we're recording this, a brand new cover of. Under Pressure, right? You know, from Queen and, you know, the famous Freddie Mercury, David Bowie uh, duet. Uh, but this time the duet is between Karen O of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and Willie Nelson, of all people. And it's just a really creative redo of the of the song. I mean, Karen O has an absolutely gorgeous voice. And Willie Nelson has a very distinctive voice. Oh, very willy voice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's interesting to see how they retuned the song, you know, uh, rearranged it and whatnot so that these two could work together. And I think it's actually kind of, they've made it into this really kind of cool uh, elegy. So go and listen to it. We'll include a link to it on the show notes. It's four minutes and 20 seconds long. Some of the best four, four minutes that you can spend in your life. Go listen. You know, man, I love the yeah, yeah, yeahs. I love Willie Nelson. And this song really didn't do it for me. 
I, I didn't get the intensity. I didn't feel like I was under pressure when I listened to it. Uh, you know, admittedly, I've been in the music business for 55 years and I'm picky and opinionated, but I mean, I'm, I thought that they did a really nice version of it, but I didn't feel like the arrangement fit the message in the song. Well, right. I mean, I think, you know, like the Queen version, I mean, you know, you get a lot of angst or not angst, but you get a lot of urgency and anxiety out of it, you know, because of the way that it is. And, and of course, Willie Nelson can't come close to Freddie Mercury or, or David Bowie in terms of <laughs> singing. And that's a good uh, thing. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I just, I just didn't get the pressure part of it, but you know, what the heck it, it was, it was very nice. It, you know, yeah. it was, it was a sweet version. Yeah. Well, it, to me, it was like, again, like it's elegiac. You know, I think it is, it's that different sort of quiet anxiety. Yeah. That's, that's what I took from it. Okay. So there you go. Something other than beer. Go watch Karen O and, and Willie Nelson sing their song. Yep. Do it. Thanks everybody for listening to experimental brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter where we're at exp brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of different beer forums, uh, these days, uh, you can find me a lot on the AHA forum. Drew is going to be on the homebrewing subreddit or the Slack homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 